This is the Clinical Takeaway podcast from HealthEd, where we interview leading medical experts on important topics that can positively change the way you practice. Here's your host, GP and medical educator, Dr. David Lim. HealthEd's face-to-face seminars are starting up again in 2022. And we hope that you will be able to join us for a day of high quality learning with a lineup of great speakers and important topics in women's and children's health. I'll be chairing a number of these events and I look forward to seeing you there. Register at healthed.com.au. Before we start, I'd like to encourage you to register for tonight's webcast, where you can always catch a high-quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. Register now at healthed.com.au. In this second and final podcast on the topic of epilepsy, Professor Samuel Berkovic addresses the issues of the psychosocial impact of epilepsy Whose responsibility is it to inform the authorities regarding driving and employment? And he provides support and resources for patients and GP. Professor Berkovic, tell us about yourself. Thank you, David. I head the Epilepsy Research Centre at the University of Melbourne, uh, based at um, Austin Hospital in Melbourne. And I was previously director of the Comprehensive Epilepsy Program at, at Austin Health. Thank you for the second podcast. In the first podcast, we dealt with uh, the diagnosis and management of epilepsy. Now we come to how we can help the person with epilepsy live a better life. So let's start. How does epilepsy affect people psychologically? What are the psychosocial aspects of epilepsy? Thank you, David. That's a really important question. And uh, the psychological aspects of epilepsy have not been sufficiently emphasised within the uh, profession. Having um, epilepsy, in other words, having the tendency to have unpredictable seizures at at any time of of day or night um, is a very destabilising thing psychologically. Um, And anxiety and mood disorders are extremely common among people with epilepsy. Superficially, one might think that this is simply due to to that, that people are worried about having seizures, which indeed they are. But we now know that it even goes deeper than that. There are biological underpinnings of this. That is, um, people with anxiety and depression are at higher risk for seizures in the general population. And similarly, people with epilepsy are at higher risk of anxiety and mood disorders. And this appears to be a a bi-directional biological phenomenon. So as as treating clinicians, we've got an obligation to always explore the issues of of mood and psychological stresses in our patients and do the best we can to to help them. This is something so new to me, this bi-directional association between mood disorders and epilepsy. I guess as a, a GP, I'm suddenly aware Um, that some of the medications I use to treat uh, depression in itself may actually predispose to epilepsy. Is that a problem? Um, Yes and no. The sort of science is that, you know, many of the antidepressants do lower the seizure threshold experimentally, but 
it's lowered far more by you know, clinically significant depression. So I don't hesitate to give or to advise to give you know, the usual um, antidepressant medications to people with epilepsy. So it should not be a reason for, for holding back. Um, it's a slightly bigger problem with the antipsychotic drugs, which um, thankfully psychosis is, is much less common, but those drugs do have um, sort of a higher epileptogenic tendency. So one does need to be careful there. But for the, the common SSRIs and SNRIs, uh, there usually is no issue giving them to people with epilepsy and they their seizures may in fact benefit if you're able to, to help their mood disorder and their, and their anxiety. Just thinking through this, because this is so interesting, a lot of our patients with um, depression have sleep disorders. I mean, their sleep quality is just shot. Do you see that association between people with depression and poor sleep and epilepsy? Yeah, I mean... Yeah. That's a good observation, David, I, but I, I think it's very hard to tease out, mm-hmm. but, but you're quite right. It, it all goes together. But uh, if they're sleeping poorly and their mood is low, then they're, they're going to be at, at increased risk of seizures. So if fixing their mood will help fix their sleep, that's great for their epilepsy. What should we inform the family about the mood disorders that may be present in the patient that's a question. And then what supports really are out there for people with epilepsy and their families? Okay. So look, I, I think, you know, one needs to explore the issue of, of, of depression and mood at when consulting with a person with epilepsy, be it a GP consultation or, 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 or a specialist consultation. And, and obviously recognising a severe mood disorder would warrant um, appropriate treatment as it would for, for people without epilepsy. But importantly, exploring the reasons for the mood disorders or contributing factors, you know, which might relate relate to school or the job or their friends um, reacting to the epilepsy, this needs to be discussed uh, and dealt with. And we have some wonderful um, support organisations that also help with this. And there's now a national epilepsy support service that um, uh, patients and families can contact for sort of... um, advice sort of outside of the, you know, the strict medical system that, that is, is a lot better than Google. Is that, uh, it's clearly national, but do they have state, are, are they state-based? It, no, it's a, it's a national service. The um, epilepsy organisations are state-based. So if people want to go in to, to talk to a, to, to a counsellor or a support worker, they are, they are state-based. The following message is a community service announcement. I'm Professor Andrew Sindoni, cardiologist at Concord Hospital in Riot Hospital in Sydney. I'm talking today about the fact that we may be missing aortic stenosis in primary care. New prevalence data actually shows that many severe symptomatic people with aortic stenosis in Australia go undiagnosed or untreated. The prevalence of symptomatic severe aortic stenosis in Australia is about 60,510 people but only 7,073 of those with people with severe symptomatic aortic stenosis receive aortic valve replacement. Certain factors do increase the risk of developing aortic stenosis, and it's what we see every day. Advancing age, people over the age of 65, cardiovascular risk factors like hypertension, diabetes, cigarette smoking, and other conditions, chronic kidney disease, coronary artery disease. If we don't think about aortic stenosis, we're not going to find it. So if someone reports these sorts of things, grab your stethoscope. 
have a listen to their chest. Maybe you haven't listened to their chest for a long time or ever because they've you know, not come to you very often or they come with other reasons. This is a condition in which we can intervene. We can make a difference with surgical aortic valve replacement and nowadays with modern therapies with transcutaneous aortic valve implantation. This has now been extended to older people who previously would have been felt to be not suitable for surgery. You say, oh, that person's old and you know, they're not going to survive an operation. This is not a general anaesthetic operation necessarily. It's a procedure which is done under sedation and local anaesthetic in the femoral artery. And this can make a huge difference to symptoms and survival, keeping people out of hospital and really make a difference to their quality of life. If you think someone has aortic stenosis when you listen to their heart, or if they have those symptoms of shortness of breath, fatigue, syncope, chest pain, if you listen to the heart and you hear a murmur, either refer them for an echocardiogram or send them to see their cardiologist. Listen, suspect, refer. Now, Sam, comes the difficulty because, you know, so the, the diagnosis of epilepsy affects so much of life uh, in terms of what I can do safely, whom I should inform, and what it could do to my life insurances. Let's, let's start with adults. So the, um, the, the rubber hits the road literally with the motor vehicle licence. And um, having active epilepsy prohibits you from driving a car. And that's a big um, handicap. It's a big handicap in the city. It's an even bigger handicap for rural and, uh, and regional uh, patients. But, you know, uh, deaths due to epilepsy from motor vehicle accidents are, are a real issue. So there's now, a, you know, a reasonably sophisticated system for dealing with this. There's a, a handbook that specifies, you know, when, when people are allowed to drive. Um, it's, it's, it's reasonably relaxed for private motor vehicle licence, but it's quite strict for a professional licence. So unfortunately, if your patient is a truck or bus driver, then I think it stands to reason that, that that's not really compatible with having active epilepsy. And the short story is they need to be 10 years seizure free, which is obviously a very long period. For the private licence, it's much more lenient. Um, and in general, the period is six months with a new diagnosis of epilepsy, but it can be as long as 12 or 24 months um, if they've got well-established epilepsy and there are recurrent seizures depending on the circumstances. Now, six months for a 19-year-old is, is a lifetime um, and you have to sort of help them through that, accepting that and, you know, uh, motor vehicle licence is part of it. But... The rules used to be, you know, a, a flat two years, but that was clearly seen as too draconian. But with the, you know, the more recent rules, it seems to work reasonably well. Now, the next issue is who should tell. So this is a this is a challenging issue. It's the driver's um, responsibility to notify the relevant motor vehicle authority if they develop a condition like epilepsy that is, that proves hindrance. So I advise my patients to tell them. If they wish me to tell them, I ask permission and I note that in my notes and then I notify the authorities, but with their permission. Uh, notifying them without permission is a very moot point. In some states of Australia, there were mandatory reporting laws and this is sort of a, a reflex political response. These people have to be reported. What that does is destroy the doctor-patient relationship. 
and doesn't make the roads any safer. So I think all authorities are um, very clear that mandatory reporting is a bad idea. So one needs to make it the responsibility of, uh, of the patient. Where the patient is clearly irresponsible or you get evidence that they're driving, then one has to carefully weigh, weigh up your responsibility for confidentiality in the doctor-patient relationship with your obligation to society as a whole. Now, in, in my career of treating people with epilepsy now for almost 40 years, I very rarely had to do that. And a basic rule is that you make it clear that it's the patient's obligation uh, and make it clear to the family outside the individual if that's, um, you know, if that's not going well. But where deemed, you know, absolutely necessary, then one reports it oneself. What I'm hearing you say, Sam, is that it's really important that I document very clearly such a discussion in my clinical notes and, and, and whether or not the patient accepts uh, responsibility or decides to give me the permission that needs to be very well recorded. Yes. I, I think, uh, as you said, and thankfully, we, we hopefully don't get to hear of patients who walk out and then drive home and, and then clearly irresponsibly, in which case I think what you're saying is that um, it's up to the doctor's, if you like, sense of understanding of our responsibility either to the community or to the patient when it comes to reporting. Yeah, and, you know, you want to um, obviously um, build an ongoing strong mm. relationship with the patients. I mean, GPs know this best and you're not going to... Um, help that relationship if you're, you know, effectively dobbing them in is, is the way they'll, they'll perceive it. How about dangerous work, you know, working at heights and electricity? Again, yeah. uh, what jobs should not be done, uh, scuba diving, and, and, and who really, again, has responsibility over these decisions? Well, um, in the work situation, again, it's the um, person with epilepsy's responsibility to tell their employer. And then that will depend on the particular dangers in the, um, in the workplace. If they, you know, they're using cutting equipment where they could injure themselves, were they unconscious? Uh, if they're climbing ladders or, or going on roofs and things like that. So, you know, it, it, it's their responsibility to discuss it with their employers. But, but our responsibility is as, as, as physicians to explain to them the risks and to get them to do that. There's also, you know, a related issue, which is tough, and that is um, what do you tell the person with well-controlled epilepsy who's applying for a job? You know, does he or she tell the employer about the condition? Because where the employer's got a bunch of people to choose from, that might be the factor that gets them crossed off the list. And this is a, this is a common story, unfortunately. And that's sort of, a, again, a very de delicate situation. Uh, we're, we're in an era where we're trying to give equal opportunity to all. So, I mean, I advise the patients to, you know, to disclose their epilepsy, but to do it effectively at the end of the process when they've basically got the job um, and not give the employer an excuse to cut them out early. But obviously, if they're in an occupation where uh, the epilepsy will be a potential danger, I think they, they have a duty to, to disclose it. 
I'm hearing you very clearly, Sam. You know, we're thinking a person with no epilepsy for many years, 10 years, well controlled, and you just don't want that to hold them back from yeah. a good job. I, I, I really value your approach. I think that um, what you're saying is let them get the job and then disclose it. Uh, what was not asked need not be revealed. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's fair. And then if we dial down to the to the paediatric age group, um, here there are sort of a different set of challenges. Obviously, the driving licence comes up with the 16-year-olds. But, but here the balance is between parents or their teachers and whatever sort of mollycoddling the child um, and potentially um, hindering their... Um, their, you know, their social and psychological development uh, versus safety. So, you know, can they sleep over at friends' houses? Can they go off on the track and ride their bikes? And I think that sort of needs to be individualised depending on the um, on the type of epilepsy that the child has and how well-controlled they are and, uh, you know, just needs some common sense and individual discussion. You know, um, what, what one sees cases where the parents, are, at least in my judgment, uh, overprotective and others where they're perhaps a little laissez-faire and you, you've just got to guide them to what you think is reasonable based on the, on the medical situation. Now, what about the implications on life insurance and uh, work uh, income insurances? Look, um, you, usually that's not a problem. If people have had, you know, many hospitalisations due to seizures or status, that may have a bearing on it. But uh, normally epilepsy does not have a major effect on your ability to get um, uh, insurance for, for work or, or life insurance. And finally, you need to tell us about the epilepsy management plan and the emergency medication management plan, Sam. So particularly for people in care, I think these written plans are very helpful uh, where different carers may be responsible for the patient. So... The management plans are, are available from the local epilepsy um, associations, uh, Epilepsy Australia, and this really just spells out the type of seizures that people are having, what action ought to be taken, you know, when an ambulance should be called, um, and whether emergency medication needs to be given. So the emergency medication is, is, is a, not controversial, but slightly complicated area in Australia, the, the experience is that the best medication is quickly administered uh, benzodiazepine. And, and the best one is midazolam because unlike most of the um, other benzodiazepines, it's water-soluble. So you can put that literally in the buccal cavity, um, you know, in front of the teeth, and it gets, gets absorbed extremely quickly and aborts the seizures. And um, in some countries, it's available as a made-up preparation for that. Uh, here it is not, but it is widely used, and we basically use the plastic ampules that, that are used by anaesthetists. So one writes out a, a midazolam plan where typically you give five milligrams and one million a plastic ampule that's then put into the buccal space, which, you know, people can be taught very quickly how to use. One of the traps is that the midazolam also comes in glass ampules, which is clearly not appropriate for home use or in an emergency situation. So you specify the plastic ampule. And I hope we'll get to a situation where it's sort of more readily available in a properly prepared preparation.
the older um, substitute for that was rectal diazepam, which is also quite effective, uh, but particularly in older children or adults, it's it, it, you know it's it's when it's not terribly appropriate to be giving them rectal injections in public places and things like that. It's uh, the the bacomedazolam is much more acceptable. Not a problem for GPs writing scripts for ampules of midazolam for patients. No, I don't believe so, no. And finally, let's just go through uh, the National Epilepsy Support Service. Tell us what it is, how it works, and how do we get in touch with them? It is a, a national um, service that, that's available for advice and information where sort of more complex uh, care is required. The, um, they will refer the person or family on to a, to a local service. Um, and they've got a 1300 uh, helpline, 1300 761 487, and an email address, uh, support at the epilepsyfoundation.org.au. And, and there the, the um, patient or family will find, you know, good, reliable advice. Look, I really appreciate it. That, that, that actually makes a whole lot of sense and is very informative. And thank you for the very sensitive and nuanced approach to those tricky issues. Well, thank you for saying so. I'm glad you found it helpful. Thank you very much, Professor Berkovic. My pleasure, David. You have a very good day. Same to you. Bye now. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for tonight's webcast, where you can always catch a high-quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high-quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free. You get CPD points and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.